this morning to celebrate communion and to get our minds, I think, uh, focused on the glory and the majesty of Christ, I want us to look at John chapter 1, one verse, verse 15. Uh, over the last few years on Communion Sundays, we've been working through this section. I think I began in verse 9, and we've gone one verse at a time through here. And it's just been a fascinating study for me. I, I know I don't expect you to remember the last times I was there because it's so far between it, but it, they're all connected in my mind. And um, in many ways, it's building up towards verse 15. So I want to read for us uh, verses 6 through verse 15. We're only going to talk about verse 15 this morning, but I'm going to read for us a section of it so we all see where we, we are. John 1, verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which was coming into the world and enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here's our verse for the morning. John testified about him. And cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I've got a couple riddles for you this morning. If you're running in a race and you overtake the person in second place, what place are you now? Yeah, you know, I, I gave the eight o'clock crowd slack for getting that wrong, but you're not in first place. You are in second. If you pass the person in second place, you're in second place, okay? Y'all with me on this? That's the way. That's the way races work. It's all right. I came across an unusual book this week. The forward was after the epilogue. The end was before the book was halfway over, and the index was before the introduction. I'm talking, of course, about a dictionary. You can listen to the recording of this, but believe me, they are all exactly in the right order because it's alphabetical. Okay, yeah, all right. You know, riddles actually serve an important rhetorical function. Some truths are just basic, like the dictionary is alphabetized, but it takes putting it in a riddle form to get your mind to start to understand the complexity of what's behind that kind of statement. That's what's going on in John 1 verse 15. It'd be very easy to say Jesus has always existed and then he was born. But John phrases it in almost a riddle type way. And so doing, he uses this wordplay to draw your attention to the eternality of Christ. This verse grounds the glory of the infinite God in the concrete identity of a person, of an individual. It takes the infiniteness of the nature of God and puts it in a specific identity, a specific human being, a certain individual with his own name and personal identity, a birth date and a location, a house, parents, brothers, sisters, and a life. That's what's happening here. The immutable, transcendent God becomes a human being. He walks with us. 
That's the description in the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Down in verse 15, John presents, presents the identity of this Word with us. The Word became flesh in verse 14. We saw His glory. And it's the same person that John the Baptist was testifying about. John was describing him. John's describing him. John the Baptist is describing him with pronouns here. Look at this. This was he in verse 15 of whom I said, he comes after me. He has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. He, 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 he. John is saying it's this one person. John can point at him and say, this is the man. This is the eternal God. This is the Logos. This is the creator God from all time and all eternity. Here he is in a person. The pronouns are making it clear that John the Baptist is identifying this person. It's the same one that John the Apostle is identifying. Now, if you're new to Christianity here, this is confusing because this is the Gospel of John. It's John chapter 1, and here we find a John in it who's not the John it's named after. The Apostle John wrote this chapter. John the Baptist is not the Apostle, and John the Baptist is the John that we're talking about here, and that's important to keep in mind. So John the Apostle, the one whom Jesus loves, Jesus' best friend on earth, is the one who's writing this. And when he is identifying who Jesus is, he's the word, he's using John the Baptist's testimony. It's John the Baptist that said, this is the one. The verb tenses in this are kind of a mess. You can look at this in verse 15. John testified, that's past tense. John the Baptist testified in the past about him and cried out saying, that's a past progressive meaning, over time in the past, he kept on saying, he kept saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. In other words, John has been talking about Jesus for a long time, even before he met him. Even before the baptism at the Jordan River, John the Baptist had always been saying, the Savior will come. And then in time, John the Baptist meets him and baptizes him. And John the Apostle is presenting to you, it's the one that John the Baptist had always been talking about. The verb tenses here are not just confusing when it gets to the verb said and testified, but also the verb is or was or to be. Look at this in verse 15. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, ergo in future, has a higher rank than I, for he existed, past tense, before me. Impossible sentence to diagram. But John puts it in a little bit of a riddle format for you. The one who is after me is actually before me, John's saying. Do you remember who John the Baptist was? The Old Testament said that before the Savior came, there would be Elijah sent from God who would make the crooked path straight, would call Israel to repent, and would prepare the Israelites to receive the Savior. That's who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was sent by God ahead of the Savior to prepare the Israelites to receive the Savior. So John the Baptist comes before Jesus. That's basic Israelite chronology. Israelite understanding of the the coming Savior, 101, first is Elijah. He's first, then the Savior. And so here's Elijah and John the Baptist. Here he comes, and John the Baptist is the first one, right? And what is he saying? There's one who's coming after me who's actually before me. Do you see why it gets confusing? (laughs) The whole point of John the Baptist is to say who's next, and John's saying you want to see who's next, you got to look at who is first. Look in the rearview mirror. You could say it this way. The one whom John's introducing is actually the one who introduced him. Or John tweaks it a bit. You're all familiar with Jesus' saying the first will be last and the last will be first. 
Well, John almost gives you a little tweak on it. John says, the next shall be first, and the first shall actually be next. (laughs) And that's what you have in verse 15. Like I said, it's a bit of a, a riddle here to get you to comprehend the eternality of the Word of God. That the man, Christ Jesus, is actually eternal. We're not eternal, but Jesus has always existed. There are different ways we could look at an outline for this morning. We could go the way John goes, the after, the present, and before, but I want to turn it backwards. John makes a mess of the verb tenses, so why don't we go at it backwards? We'll go, I guess you could say it chronologically, starting at the end of verse 15 with the he existed before me. I'll give you an outline here, and we'll begin with the word before. Before. Before John the Baptist. That's how verse 15 ends. He existed before me. So we're going backwards. What does that mean before John? Like before John was born? Now he's not talking about birth order here because remember, John the Baptist was before Jesus. Chronologically, John the Baptist was born first. He started his ministry first. He was older. So when John says he, he was before me, he's talking about before John the Baptist was born. But he's not just talking about John the Baptist here. He's talking about before people. Before there were people, not just John, but any person, Adam and Eve. Before there were people, Jesus existed. The word here, for the word before here, is the word proto. And we use that in, in English, you know, a prototype, you know, the, what's the iPhone on, iPhone 19 or whatever. You can, there's the iPhone 19 prototype. It's the first of that kind of iPhone. And the others will be built off of it. That's the idea here for Jesus, that before there was Adam and Eve, he was proto, he was first. He existed before human beings did. The truth is he's before us in rank. He's before us in time. He doesn't just exist before us, but he leads us. He's exalted above us. He is God. We are not. It's not just that he's greater. It's that he's first. You could say it that way. It's not just that Jesus is greater. It's that he's first. The point of this is that before there were any human beings, the Son of God had the nature of God. Before there were any human beings, the Son of God had the nature of God. He had the very nature of God indwelling in him. Now, nature is what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all share. And so this becomes a Trinitarian passage. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all in the nature of God. They all have divine nature. They are all God by their very essence. That's the way the Trinitarian creeds have been phrased, and I think that captures the biblical truth, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have the essence of God. They share in the substance of God, but they have different subsistences, is the way the creeds say it. In other words, they're different persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, but they all have the same divine nature. That's so hard for people to understand, because people, there's not a difference between our personhood and our nature. We are who we are. But with God, his personhood is an expression of his nature, the equipment, the the identity. So he has the identity and the nature of God, but in the person of the word of God. That's what makes sense of John 1.1. In the beginning was the logos, the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Well, now that word has become flesh. And what John the Baptist is saying is before he was flesh, he had the very nature of God. He was in the substance of God. He has an existence. The one who made Adam and Eve exists before Adam and Eve. He's the only human who can say that. (laughs) Before he was a human being, he was God. The one who made Adam and Eve, the one who made the world, 
What happens here is he's going to become in the image of Adam. He's going to become dependent upon Mary. The one who made Mary will become dependent upon Mary. But he has an identity and an existence independent of Mary. Do you understand that? You don't. Your identity and existence is dependent upon your parents. That's how you got here. But Jesus has an identity and an existence that is not dependent upon his parents. Not at the virgin birth, of course. It's not dependent on his mother. Obviously not dependent upon his father. He has an existence that is not contingent upon him actually being born. Do you understand that you did not exist before you were conceived in the womb? There's no reservoir of souls that God pulls your soul out of and places you in a, a, a fetus or a human body or an embryo or however you chart it out. God didn't create your soul somewhere and place you in to a body. Your soul and your identity was knit together in the womb. That's where you started. That is not where Jesus started. He's unlike every other human being in that regard because he has the nature of God. He is eternal. Now, a quick word here about the difference between existence and being. This is kind of a philosophical point. It's interesting to me. I hope you find it interesting too. If not, just roll with me, okay? Humor me. In the Greek mind, there's a big difference between existence and being. Jog your mind back to like your philosophy 101 class in college. You probably heard this expression, you can't stand in the same river twice. You ever heard that expression before? And this is what the Greeks meant by this. It's a philosophical expression from, from Greek worldview. You can't stand in the same river twice because what's happened? The river has changed. You go and stand in a river today, you go back to the same spot tomorrow, it's not going to be the same river. The water has moved on. The river has an existence, but it changes over time. And you've changed too. You're not the same person today as you were yesterday or you will be tomorrow. You've aged and you've had different experiences and, and all of that. So you can't stand in the same river tri- twice. You exist still. The river exists still, but it's changing. This is why R.C. Sproul used to always say, I don't believe in a God who exists. Any God who exists is not worth believing in. <laughs> What he means by that is existence is different than being. Existence implies it's continual change. Well, God doesn't exist. God is. You see the difference? God just is. He doesn't mature. He doesn't grow. He doesn't learn new things. He's not flowing by. God is the fixed point. He is stationary. All of existence makes sense as it relates back to him. But God, he's the one who made everything else exist. It's a huge difference. Now, I bring you through that baggage because we're using the New American Standard here. And in verse 15, it says, for he existed before me. Well, this word existed here, it's not the Greek word for existed. It's actually the word for for is, to be. What John the Baptist is saying is that before there were any human beings, Jesus was. He just was. He wasn't existing. He just is. This is how Jesus said it. Remember when he's talking to the Pharisees, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said it in present tense. <laughs> this is how John 1.1 1, 1 says it. The word was God. What John the Baptist is saying is that Jesus, before any human has ever drawn a breath, before Adam was made out of dirt, Jesus, the Son of God, is God. He's always been. He is eternal. Eternality speaks to the nature of God, hence this statement. And that's who Jesus was before 
John the Baptist before any of us. Now let's look at what he became. Let's look at our second word here, what he became in the middle of verse 15. It says, he has a higher rank than I. The greatness of Jesus is accentuated by John the Baptist's testimony that he now has a higher rank than I. Here's why it's important to understand that it's John the Baptist saying this. This is why John's using John the Baptist's testimony. Because John the Baptist is the greatest person who had ever existed. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said it. (laughs) This is Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, Jesus declares that John the Baptist is the greatest human who has ever existed. And why is that? Well, Jesus says in Luke 7, because John introduced him. See how that's actually a statement about Jesus more than it is about John? (laughs) If I were to tell you that David Jones is the greatest person ever because he got to play the piano before I preached. You see how that's actually a statement about me, not David? (laughs) It's about me and my arrogance. That's what Jesus is doing when he says that John is the greatest person ever. That John is so great because he introduced Jesus. And of course, the the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John because we know more about Jesus than John did. So if John is the greatest person who ever lived at this point, and he turns around and says, Jesus is a higher rank than me, do you see the significance of this? This is not the testimony of some random Jacob Israelite here. This is the testimony of the person who Jesus declares is the most exalted person ever. And he's the one who's saying, no, 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 it's actually you, Jesus. You're greater than me. The word here is translated in the New American Standard, he ranks, but here's where it gets confusing. Somebody told me this week, listen, don't use Greek in your preaching because it makes you sound arrogant. And I said, I'll think about that until Saturday night. (laughs) But this here, this word that's translated in the New American Standard, that he outranks me, he ranks greater than me, that's actually the word for become. So what John the Baptist is saying is that even though he's always existed as the nature of God, he's becoming something different right now. And so it's worth pausing and saying, Pastor Jesse, this is confusing. Two minutes ago, you said God doesn't become anything. He doesn't change. He doesn't progress. He's perfect as he is. And now you're saying that he becomes something right here. I know it's confusing. (laughs) Well, here's why. Here's what he becomes. He pre-exists as God, but he becomes something else in time. Namely, he takes on a second nature, that of a human. So though he has the nature of God, which does not change, he adds a second thing on top of it, a new nature. He's always existed in the nature of God, but now he adds a new nature to himself. That's the nature of a human. So does God's nature change? Look at, as I do this, he always has the nature of God. That's not, a, it's not changing, it's consistent. But now he adds a new nature. The nature of God is not altered. The nature of God is not diluted. The nature of God is not infringed upon or restrained. There is simply a new nature added on top, a second nature. Now listen, this is so hard for us to get our minds around because this has never happened before or ever again. There is no angel with two natures. The Holy Spirit and the Father do not have two natures. No human being has these two natures like this. This is unique to the Son of God, eternally in the nature of God, and now he becomes 
a man placed in Mary's womb. The one who made Adam and Eve will come in the image of Adam. The one who gives life becomes dependent upon Mary for sustenance. The one who made the crops and made the animals will be dependent upon the crops and animals for food. That's what John is trying to describe here. In other words, he's unlike any other human being. He outranks us all because he has these two natures. Now, these two natures are not diluted. It's, and this is where heresy comes in. If you say, oh, because he has a second nature, he's half God, half man. Wrong. Or if you say he's just God in a human body. Wrong. He is entirely God and entirely man, or the way the creeds say it. He's fully God and fully man. He's not 98% God and 100% man. That's an error. He's fully God, fully man. He's not fully God and 98% man because, hey, how can God and man get together? No, also an error. Fully God, fully man. And it's not as if he's fully God, but his power of God is diluted. It's just less potent. (laughs) No, he's truly God and truly man. Fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. Both are true. That's what's happening here when the word becomes flesh. Despite being Adam's maker, he'll now be in Adam's image and likeness. Despite being the one whom angels worship, he will have to be served by angels. Despite being dependent upon no one for existence, he'll become dependent upon his parents. This is why there's, the scripture describes his incarnation as a humiliation. Not because he loses his divine attributes, but because there's a certain humiliation that comes in becoming a person. You know, dogs don't realize how small their yard is. Do you know this? <laughs> your dog is happy in your yard, no matter how small your yard is, because your dog doesn't know any better. He doesn't know how big your neighbor's yards are. He's just happy. In a sense, people are like that. We don't know the limitations of being a person because, you know, (laughs) here we are. (laughs) But the Son of God, being eternally God, taking on a human nature, do you see the humiliation there? That he'll be localized as a person. He'll be localized in one place that he'll be dependent upon his parents, that he'll have to learn how to speak, learn how to walk, study things in school, eat, sleep, all that's going to happen to him. That's why the Bible describes it as a humiliation. He has the nature of God and the nature of man. All of this is just a fancy way of saying the way Jesus says it to the Pharisees. The Savior will be David's son and David's Lord. Remember when the Pharisees were confronting him and he says, I have a question for you. Riddle me this. How can, the old, how can David say that the Savior is going to be his Lord but also his descendant? How can that be? But that's what the psalmist says, isn't it? The Savior will be David's Lord and David's descendant. And you think that can't, well, here's your answer. John the Baptist understood that he will be fully God and fully man. The King of Israel will be the Son of Israel. And the Son of God is the Son of Man. Now, of course, he's the perfect man. He'll be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says all through John's gospel, he came to do his father's will. He can only do what his father will have him to do. He is the perfect Adam. 
He will remain sinless. Whereas Adam forgot about his heavenly father's command and listened to the serpent, the savior, Jesus Christ, will not forget his father's command. He will only do what his father wants him to do. He will not listen to the devil, though tempted. He will be sinless. No religious leader has ever done this. No other religion even claims this for their leader, that he led led a sinless life, never committing a single transgression ever. I mean, how do you describe that? How can you articulate that kind of majesty and greatness? That's why I love how it gets translated here in the New American Standard, where John just says, he outranks me. (laughs) Somebody showed me at a Pentagon tour I was on recently, the army guide, field guide or whatever, to the different ranks, and it it said in that there is such thing as a a five-star general, but it's reserved. There's none of them are current right now. It's something the army reserves the right to give to somebody for a situation that if there's you know, a thing where one of our military leaders has to lead a, an army with a shared leadership with a, a general from another nation, and that nation has that ranking. We don't want our general outranked. That can't be. So we invent a new rank, so he always outranks them. To which I just say, America, gotta love it. <laughs> Not gonna get outranked here. We have a new rank. <laughs> That's what John the Baptist is saying about Jesus here. Listen. The best way to understand this, he outranks you. He's fully a human, but the kind of human that outranks you. Why? Because he existed before us. He's eternally God. Well, that's who Jesus was. This is what he became at his incarnation, but notice where John begins the statement in verse 15. He who comes after me. Well, and what is the third word? What, what Jesus will do. And we've looked at what he was and what he became, and now the, the third concept of what he will do, what he will accomplish. And that's really what John's gospel is all about, what he's going to become. We saw who he was and what he, who he became, and now what he's going to become in the future. Ask yourself this, he who comes after me, ask yourself this, in what sense does anything Jesus do, does come after this statement by John the Baptist? Jesus, at this point, has already been born. The virgin birth has already happened. The incarnation, the addition of the second nature to Jesus, that's already happened by this point. Jesus is already leading a sinless life by this point. He's already grown in wisdom and knowledge and in favor with God. That's already happened at this point. So what's left? Well, what he's going to become is what the rest of John's gospel is about. He's going to be the savior of the world. He's going to be the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. It's significant the incarnation itself is a bit of a riddle. How is it that God can become man? But more than being a riddle, this verse answers riddles. How can God be eternal and yet personal? How can he be transcendent, which means above all and apart from his creation, and eminent, which means at hand in his creation? And the answer is because he has two natures and therefore he can be the perfect sacrifice. That's what he's going to become. The Son of God, with the nature of God and the nature of man, will die a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. He will be the perfect sacrifice. He can be the justifier because he's lived in our place. He can be the one offended by our sin. He can be the one who forgives our sin. All this can be true because of his two natures. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the penalty for sin. Because the blood of bulls and goats is not a person. 
you know, God forbid this would, would happen, but if one of your loved ones was murdered and the person who did it said, let me, in, in, replace, in replacement, let me offer you a sheep or a goat. It doesn't make things equal. What about 10,000 rams, Micah asks? What about 10,000 rams? Would that do the trick? And 10,000 rivers of oil, does that make up for it? Of course not. There's nothing you can give because there's nothing else that's a person. And here's where the humanity of Christ is so important, that he can be the perfect sacrifice because he is the perfect person. And he can also forgive because he's the one who is sinned against. If somebody were to come up and punch you, I can't stand between you two and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. just so you know, she forgives you for that. Because I'm not the one that was punched. <laughs> somebody punches you, I can't forgive the puncher on your behalf. <laughs> if somebody punches me, I can forgive them. Don't give me the opportunity to demonstrate this later. <laughs> How can a person forgive on behalf of God? He can't. No person can forgive on behalf of God unless that person is also God. It was David who declared that it's against you and you alone that I have sinned. Speaking to Yahweh. And so Yahweh, God himself, is the only one who can forgive sins in a real sense. Jesus led the perfect life, making him fit to be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus led the perfect life, making him fit to mete out justice. He can be the just because of his perfect life. He can be the perfect judge and he can rule perfectly. Because of deity, he can execute justice with holiness and true vengeance. Because of his human nature, he can stand in for us and in our place. Because of his divine nature, he can come to us and reach down to us and offer us salvation. He can be transcendent and eminent. Or to put it this way, he can be a worshiper and the worshipped. You see him worshiping God and you see him receiving worship. They can both be true because of this verse. He can be just and the justifier. He can be the creator of angels and the one served by angels. He can be David's son. He can be David's Lord. He can die as a substitute and he can live forever because of his resurrection. This is the holiness of our Savior. This is what John is describing when he says he's coming after me. He outranks me and that's because he existed before me. As we turn our attention to the Lord's table this morning, understand that this is something we do to celebrate these truths. It's something we do to celebrate the divine and human nature together. Dying as a substitute for our sin. Giving his life for us. It's what we do to commemorate the truth of the gospel. Now, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, two choices. <laughs> Either let this cup pass, let the bread pass. This is just for people who are followers of Jesus Christ, who've given them their life, who believe this message. Or give your life to Christ today. Confess your sins to him. Trust that he's the perfect savior who meets your need and can die in your place. This is something we do as believers. Let's dedicate this time to prayer. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. 
We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.